Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our theme this week is of writing and illustrating, actually, for young readers, young adults and children. Our featured guest is Anne-Marie Howell, a.k.a. A.M. Howell, talking about her latest novel, The Secret of the Treasure Keepers. We'll also hear from Wafa Tarnowska about her novel for young people called Noor's Secret Library. And illustrator Yu Rong will chat about bringing Matt Goodfellow's story, Shulin's Grandpa, to life through images. But Amory will give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you. It's lovely to be here today. Nice to have you. And as I say, this is a programme focusing on writing for young readers. Why this genre for you? How did you end up becoming a children's author? I think it was really because of my love of reading books when I was young. So I grew up in a very small village just outside of Nottingham. And we had a village shop that sold sweets and bread and milk. And that was it. And there was nothing else to do in that village. Um, there was a bus a couple of times a day that would take you into Nottingham. But the big thing that used to happen every three weeks is a library van would arrive and it would arrive at a local bus stop and you could take out as many books as you liked. That was a really big event. And my mum was always a big reader. So we used to arrive with our bags and just carry home as many books as we could to last us for three weeks. And so I was a little bookworm, really. I was just very happy, sort of curled up in a corner with my books. So when I started thinking about writing and what age group I'd like to write for, I initially thought maybe I'd write for adults, but then it didn't feel right. I had a little go. I'd started a book, but only got less than a tenth of the way through it and just didn't feel very good. And then started to think about writing for children. It just felt so natural to me to, to write um, in that voice for that age group. So sort of particularly the eight to 12 age group, which is when I really discovered reading and loved it so much. So really that's, that's how it happened, really, all, all because of that library van. All because of that library van and that age group, as you say, eight to 12, nine to 12. It's a good age group to work with, isn't it? Because you can really go to town on the plot and you can have some big issues there. They can understand those things, but you're not delving too deeply into graphic violence or anything like that. Yeah, that's right. I think particularly as I write historical mysteries, um, I think with the history side of things, I'm always very conscious not to overload the stories with too many facts. I love reading adult historical fiction, but some books I read are very heavy. You know, they really pack in the detail, which can detract from the plot a little bit. But children will take no prisoners at all. They want the plot to zoom along. They want the characters to sing. And they just want those little interesting historical facts that will grab their imagination. And that's what I find so fun about doing the research, I think, for these books, is finding those little golden nuggets to put into the story that they'll like. And you can have a relationship with your readers. That's the other good thing about this age group. And I know that you particularly enjoy school visits. I do. I love school visits and I love doing book signings and talking to people that have read my books and hearing what they think and just hearing the different takes on it. Everybody seems to take away something different or likes a different character or a different part of the plot. And it's just so fascinating to me that somebody is reading the words that I made up and then has an opinion on them. It's a real privilege. I, I absolutely love it. And I have to ask you, Anne-Marie, why your AM how when it comes to writing? Ah, OK, well, there is a little bit of a history behind that. So when I got an agent who began submitting my books to publishers way back in 2015, the books were sent out under Anne-Marie Howell. And I actually had three books sent out. None of them got picked up by publishers. 
So I had to be quite persistent. And then when I wrote The Garden of Lost Secrets, my agent said, let's try something a bit different. We'll bill you as A.M. Howell as a kind of fresh name going out to publishers. And I don't think that was the reason The Garden of Lost Secrets got picked up, but it just kind of stuck and Osborne went with it. I think because it's a bit shorter than Anne-Marie Howell as well. It's easier to fit on the front of the book. It does have a certain ring about it, I have to say. (laughs) And uh, we'll hear your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you? Very important to me. I've always loved music. I was a big um, concert goer um, in my teen years. I love watching all the Top of the Pops 90s reruns at the moment that are on television. So yeah, I I listen to music a lot when I write um, as well. So depending on what sort of mood I am and what scene I'm writing. So yeah, it's very important to me. And this first one, we're starting with an absolute classic, Spandau Ballet and Gold. Why this one? Well, I think it's a little bit of play on words, really. I think because my book is The Secret of the Treasure Keepers and it's about gold. So it's a little bit of a play on words. But I love 80s music, Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran, Wham, all of those favourites, really. I listen to a lot. Thank you for coming home. Sorry that the cheers are That was Gold by Spandau Ballet, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Anne-Marie Howell. Anne-Marie, a.k.a. A.M. Howell, has written four novels for children. Her first, The Garden of Lost Secrets, came out in 2019 and was described by the Daily Mail as an impressive debut. Her second novel, The House of 100 Clocks, won the Malpeat Children's Award and the East Anglian Book of the Year Award, the first time a children's book has scooped the prize. Mystery of the Night Watchers was a Sunday Times children's book of the week, with the Daily Telegraph calling it superb. Her fourth novel, The Secret of the Treasure Keepers, was published last month and has already got a big thumbs up from readers. Well, I enjoyed it too, actually, very much, Anne-Marie. I know it's not really aimed at me, but I really did enjoy it, got quite involved. So for people who haven't read it, what's it about? Um, the Secret of the Treasure Keepers is set um, in Cambridgeshire, just south of Ely, and it's set in 1948, so a few years after the end of the Second World War. And it's about a girl called Ruth who answers a telephone call in the British Museum while her mum is being interviewed for a job. Her mum is an aspiring archaeologist. And she learns that some treasure has been found um, on this farm called Rook Farm. And so Ruth decides that she and her mum must go and investigate, unbeknown to the people at the British Museum. So off they go. And when they arrive there, they discover some very mysterious things that the farmer's son, Joe, really doesn't want them to be there. The treasure they've found has got some mysterious circumstances around it. There's a land girl called Audrey who seems to be keeping secrets along with her fiancé. And as they discover these secrets about the treasure, all the secrets about the family start to become uncovered. So it's a big mystery that takes them from London to the Cambridgeshire Fens and up to Norwich and back. So it's a real sort of book set over quite a wide area this time as well. And why the Cambridgeshire Fens? Why did you have the farm set there? I think it's an area I love to visit. My husband went to school in Ely, so we do go back to that that area quite a lot. We go for walks there. I think there's something beautiful about the big skies, the landscapes, the wildlife. It's just beautiful. So I thought to me, the thought of an isolated farm, which is what I wanted to write about, setting it in the fence seemed a very natural place to set it. Um, And it is a made up place. Rook Farm doesn't actually exist. I've had people ask me this, but it's sort of just, you know, something purely for my imagination, but based on the farms that I've seen around in that area. Yes, it would be off the A10 if it did exist, I think. Yeah, that's correct. Off the A10. And it's, as you say, archaeology, the part of this novel, really, as well as family secrets. Archaeology is something that you've had a longstanding interest in, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by archaeology. Even when I was very young, I used to dig up my parents' garden um, in the hope of finding something very interesting. Often it was just 
rocks and bits of glass and blue and white china. But the thought that they were there in the first place used to thrill me. I used to think, who put them there? Why are they there? So even back when I was sort of eight and nine, I was thinking about those things. Then I did an archaeological dig when I took my gap year, visited Pompeii, which absolutely captivated me, and then went on to study archaeology for a little while at university as one of my modules. So it's something I've always had a really passionate interest in, but I'm by no means any expert at all. I'm very much an armchair enthusiast. I suppose as well, it's a, a metaphor for hidden secrets, isn't it? And preserving the past. It is, absolutely. I think that's why um, it fitted in so well with the story. And the inspiration actually came from a real-life treasure find uh, near Mildenhall in 1942 called the Mildenhall Hoard or Mildenhall Treasure, which is now on display in the British Museum. Or there's a replica in the Mildenhall Museum, which is much more local to us, which is great to visit. Um, What happened was a farmer was ploughing up the field and he found this Roman treasure, amazing pieces, including a huge um, silver plate or platter, which weighs eight kilograms, absolutely enormous, spoons and all sorts of other things. But the most fascinating thing about the find is it wasn't reported. He actually hid it and kept it for quite a number of years. And the rumour was he even ate his porridge from the silver Roman spoons that he'd found, which I think is really fascinating. So that really kind of inspired me, that treasure find. I thought it'd be really good to incorporate that sort of detail into the story. And one of the reasons I think I enjoyed the novel so much is because you've got a plot that moves forward. You have cliffhangers, a couple of chapters. Oh, I've got to find out what happens here. But the characters are very well drawn. I mean, this age group that we were talking about earlier, you do need to do that, don't you? Particularly secondary characters as well. They each need to feel very real and a plot with depth and subplots as well. Absolutely right. I think when I'm drawing my characters or or describing my characters and what they do, they have to be like real people to me when I'm writing about them and they have to have their own motivations. I think characters can sometimes be a bit flat if they don't. So they have to want something of their own. I mean, that's the main thing that you're taught when you're writing. Your character must want something and that thing that they want must be out of grasp. So they cannot get that thing. And so the whole book is about them trying to get what they want, really. And I think it's very important for side characters to have a very similar aim, something that they want, but they can't quite get. And I think it makes people feel much more rounded because that's just human nature. We're all striving for something in our lives. And I think it just can make those characters just feel a little bit more real on the page. And this age of readership can hold all that as well as a plot that's moving forward quite quickly. Yeah, definitely. In fact, I think we, we're very guilty of badly underestimating children and what they read. And I think when I learn about what some children are reading, they're reading things way above their age level of what's recommended. Kids are, are very, very bright and they will take from books what they want and what's relevant to them, really. So I always like to write up rather than write down. I don't want to be patronising when I write. I think, you know, I just write for everybody. The age group is 8 to 12, but also I know adults enjoy these books as well. I've had sort of fan mail from adults saying they've really, really enjoyed it, and it's taken them back to their own childhoods and reading. So maybe I'm writing for my younger self, really. Maybe that's what I'm doing. (laughs) And the research you do, because again, it has to feel authentic. It has to feel real because, uh, as you say, your readers, even though they are young, they can still check things out. So what kind of research did you do for this novel? I probably did more research for this story than, than any other. So I visited the British Museum. Um, this was all before lockdown as well. because I had the idea quite a long time ago for this story. Got to know the Mildenhall treasure quite well and another treasure find called the Hoxon Hoard which again was made in Suffolk back in 1992, another big Roman treasure hoard. So I did a lot of research into those. And I also spoke to the curators of the British Museum who were very generous with their time. And they even read passages of the book as I started to draft it to make sure that the 
archaeological elements were authentic. Because again, that was really important to me. I was hoping that children might read the book and get interested in archaeology as I am, and maybe want to pursue it further. There's a great group called the Young Archaeologists Club uh, that you can join and go on real digs with real archaeologists. And so I really wanted to encourage kids to get interested in that. So yeah, the, the research was really fun. And it's set in 1948. The war obviously over, but memories of it still very fresh. They're still rationing, there's still memories of bomb raids, bomb sites. Why did you set it during that period? I think it's a period that isn't often written about. There's a huge wealth of children's fiction set in the Second World War and in the First World War. And I love it. I gulp it down. I love books set in that period of time. But as I started, I thought about initially setting it during the war. But then the more I started to research this area, the more interesting things I found out about how life went on after the war. And I looked up to see what books had been written and not many have been written after the war or set in that time period. So I found out some really interesting things like electricity was rationed. They had energy problems, a bit like we're having now. You know, the cost was too great. There weren't enough people to, to work in the power station. So you're encouraged to use electricity, you know, not outside of peak hours. And the government went in a real campaign persuading people to do that. And some offices even resorted to working by candlelight, which is just an incredible thought. This was actually post-war. Um, and also things like the Baydecker bombing raids in Norwich. I learned about those. So the Baydecker handbook was a handbook about our historic towns, like a guidebook, tourist guidebook, really. And the Germans used that to target those historic places with their bombers to try and reduce our morale. And I discovered that this had happened in Norwich quite severely. One place that was bombed was Bond's department store, which sat on the site of the current John Lewis in Norwich. But Mr. Bond was not going to give up. His store was completely destroyed. But the very next day, he set about setting up his shop in a fleet of buses in the car park, which I think is absolutely brilliant, shows the British spirit going on, which I thought was great. So all those little facts I tried to include into the story um, just to highlight the troubles people went through and how difficult life was at that time, but still that people were very optimistic about the future as well. And I suppose on a practical level as well, obviously there's no mobile phones. Uh, most houses don't have a telephone. So when somebody goes away, they really do go away. And an isolated farm in the fens, when Ruth is left by her mum for reasons that we won't go into now, she really is on her own. Yeah, totally on her own. You know, the farm had no telephone, which again was very common back then. A lot of these farms still were not connected to the phone. So the only means of contacting were by telegram, which is an incredible thought. So really we're on, almost like on a little island. I wanted to create that atmosphere of her being on this island, cut off from real life, but with these people who were not quite what she thought they were as she uncovered the secrets and came to her sort of own conclusions about what they were up to. Yeah, so it was, it was really fun to write that. Was there something also about it almost being a level playing field as well? Because they're quite different, Ruth and, and Joe, who's the young boy on the farm, in terms of class. But actually, they're linked by their experience. They're both in financial straits. Both families are suffering and they're both come from single parent families. Yes, absolutely. So um, in the story, Ruth's parents are going through a divorce. It's an amicable divorce, but it means that Ruth is very likely to lose her home and all the memories that that gives her of her parents being together, which I think maybe a lot of people can relate to. And then Joe's father has sadly died, not during the war, but he's died of an illness. So he's now helping on the farm with his mum to keep the farm going. So these two children have both got problems that they're trying to deal with. And then when they come together, I think it helps them see a way around their problems and how working together can actually make things a bit better. 
Thank you, Anne-Marie. Uh, we'll come back to you in just a moment, but let's almost stay with that theme of secrets, really, and hear from Wafa Tarnowska. Wafa was born in Lebanon and has lived and worked around the world. Her version of Arabian Nights, published in 2011, won the American Folklore Society Aesop Accolade and was a gold medal winner at the Moonbeam Awards. Amazing Women of the Middle East came out in 2020, and her most recent book, Noor's Secret Library, a novel for children, was published last month. When I spoke to Wafa, I asked her to tell me what the novel is about, and I should say that we spoke by Zoom, and Wafa was in the lobby of a hotel in Mexico where there were also some very noisy parrots. It's about a little girl and a little boy, their cousins, Noor and Amir, and they are living in Damascus, having a normal childhood life, you know, climbing trees, uh, riding bicycles, reading and going to school. Their dream is to have a secret society, like, you know, Enid Blyton, the Secret Seven and the Famous Five. Actually, Noor is me when I was a child. That's what I wanted. But then what happened is, again, what happened to me as a child is the war starts completely unexpectedly. So the day of the secret society, the war starts and they have to cancel the meeting and they have to go underground and hide in the basement for months on end until the war stops. In fact, the war takes ages. It rarely stops. During the time while they're underground, the boy is sent to buy provisions. And there he finds all these books that have been spilling out of all the bombed out buildings, piles and piles of them. And so him and his friend start picking all these books and bringing them inside. And that's the true story because that happened during the Syrian civil war in a suburb southwest of Damascus called Daraya. That's what young kids did. They picked all these books. They found a basement that was empty and they collected 15,000 books. And so I amalgamated this real story with my childhood memories of the war and of my love of books. Now, the real secret library only lasts three years. I don't say in the book that it only lasts three years. I give hope. But because the library was destroyed, I ended up at the end writing about eight different libraries in the Middle East that were also destroyed. Also, I wanted to show that, you know, the Middle East is not just about war and, and strife. But I mean, there's a lot of culture in this part of the world and people value books and it's a multicultural society. So I mentioned in there the various languages, religions. I'm kind of teaching people a little bit about the complexity of the Middle East, but with a beautiful, hopeful subject. The book itself is set in Syria, but your experiences were in the Lebanon. Is that right? Yeah. But all wars are the same, my dear. The fighters are fighting outside and the civilians have to take shelter. And those cities are not built for war. It wasn't like in the Second World War where you could go to a bomb shelter. There are no bomb shelters. The only shelter is a basement. I mean, even in the basement, I remember hiding under the table, thinking, oh, it's probably safer under the table than just sitting upright and reading. While up outside and upstairs, the buildings were shelled and wars are wars. And it's so timely because now it's happening in the Ukraine. As you say, very timely. It's about lots of things, isn't it? The resilience of the human spirit and the power of books. 
honestly, that is the reason why I took that story from the Syrian war. Wow, other kids realize the power of books because when I was little, the only thing that made me not afraid is to go and hide in a book. So I would bring the most difficult books I could find. So I would be really engrossed in them. I would be really, really on another planet because I didn't want to hear the news around me and the bombing and the shelling and the people crying. That's why I realized that that story is real because a lot of kids do this. Their parents are fighting. They go inside their bedroom and they read and they forget. Books have a huge power to suck you into their universe. Books saved me. And that's why I resonated so much with that story. Because without the books I read during those months in the basement, I don't think I could have survived psychologically. It's really frightening to, I mean, to sleep every night with, I mean, I can sleep anywhere now because I trained myself to sleep under the bombs. And when you're writing about war for a a young readership, because I think this is aimed at six to 10 year olds, how do you do that in a way that you get the message across, but without it being too graphic or frightening? That's exactly the challenge of this book. I've been wanting to write about these experiences for years, and I just did not want to make it a sad story. On the other hand, I utterly believe that kids should not be completely, completely protected as not to know what is happening around them. So I always wanted to write about real subjects to children, but with the context of the library being a hopeful project, I could write about difficult things because then there was hope at the end. If I had just written that, you know, at the end I had to leave my country, which is the truth. I wanted another aspect of that problem. And the story presented it to me, you know. It took me years to write about that experience, which was very powerful in my mind. It really affected me profoundly that those uh, six months down in the basement. What about the illustrations, Wafa? They're beautiful, aren't they? And uh, did you work with the illustrator on that? Because there's a lot going on with colour and distance and perspective there. Well, she is an amazing illustrator in her own right, but I was consulted on lots of details. I sent her lots of photos of Damascus before the war so she could get inspired by the skyline. I was asked lots of questions about the hijab. If you notice with the mother, she's not wearing the burqa. She's she's wearing trousers and top. She just covered her hair. And that is how it is in the Arab world. The women wear jeans, but they cover their hair. So it's not like they're all wearing the long robes. Now, some of them wear the wrong robes, but it's way more complex than what the West think. It's like everybody wears the long robe. No. And the father is wearing this kind of thing because he's a worker. I mean, he works in his uh, bakery. He needs to cover his hair. Also, what I wanted to show in the book, Lee, is the beautiful aspects of Damascus. Originally, when I wrote the story, we had to simplify it a bit. The mother was a perfumer. And the father was a baker because perfumes were very, very, and are still fantastic in Damascus. I mean, you know, Rosa Damascena. And the father was a baker because sweets, you know, Arab sweets and Damascene sweets are fantastically delicious. So I wanted to show also some professions which probably the Western kids don't know. But we had to simplify a little bit. And so the, the mother's profession 
disappeared, but originally that was my idea about the mother. And those colours that she uses, the illustrator, there's a lot of blue at the beginning, but she then superimposes the images of the old city on the new. At the end, the black, the black with the bombing, that was a genius idea. She's very, very sensitive. She also had a very difficult childhood in Romania. She also understands, I think she went to visit the Arab part of Jerusalem to get a, a flavor of how the city would be. So that's why she's incredibly, incredibly on the pulse of the story. I think her illustrations are really stunning. That's the thing with children's book. You need to get the right illustrator, specifically when you're talking about the Middle East, because it's so easy to go into stereotypes. And I know you're always busy, Wafa. So what are you up to now? What are you doing next? I have two proposals. You're going to love them, Lee, when they come out (laughs) in books, I hope. And I also, believe it or not, started writing a story for my grandson, who was born almost a year ago. He really, really inspired me to write a story. And hopefully for my granddaughter, who was born six months ago. My grandson, I started writing it. I know exactly what it is. My granddaughter, I'm still thinking a little bit about what to offer her. So yeah, I've got like two proposals, one story I'm writing and one story I'm dreaming of because inspiration comes to me a little bit like a waterfall. I would be sitting somewhere and suddenly, oh yeah, I write it very, very quickly. And then of course I work on it and everything, but I'm waiting for that inspiration for my granddaughter who's called Little Pearl. So it has to be maybe a sea story or something like this because pearls, you know, and Noah's Secret Library by Wafa Tarnowska is published by Barefoot Books. We're talking on Bookmark today to Anne-Marie Howell, a.k.a. A.M. Howell, about her novel, The Secrets of the Treasure Keepers. Anne-Marie, are we talking about inspiring readers to become archaeologists? It seemed to me that actually there have been lots of changes since uh, the world where your book was set in 1948 and the current world, though some things are still the same, principally the attitudes to women and children, particularly in the workplace. And you have a character, Mr Knight, who sort of exemplifies that, really. I do, yes. Mr Knight, who works at the British Museum, who uh, Ruth's mum is very keen to, to work for. But Mr Knight is very much, I suppose he's pretty sexist, really. You know, he doesn't really agree with women in the workplace. He tells Ruth's mum she has to get lots of experience. She's underqualified. But that just makes her more determined, I think, to carry on. And I really did wonder what life was like back then for women trying to get into archaeology. So I spoke to a fascinating um, former curator at the British Museum called Catherine Johns, who is quite an eminent archaeologist, now retired. And she told me about what life was like for her in the 1950s. And it was very, very different. You know, people were quite dismissive of women that wanted to go into that role. But there were some real pioneering women who really sort of took forward archaeology and, and gave it a you know a really good name in terms of the work they were doing. And I wanted that to be reflected in Ruth's mum, really, and Harriet, and really give her that gumption and drive to follow her dreams to become an archaeologist. And one of the other themes that seems to be in the book is the difference between the countryside and the city, particularly at this post-war period. In many ways, there's lots in common, but the life is very different. And Ruth experiences both coming to the fens from London. Absolutely. And I think when she gets to the farm, she almost cannot believe that this whole 
world of nature and growing food has been going on all around her while she's been in London and subject to bombing raids and hiding in the underground and worrying for her mum's safety as she cycled across London delivering top secret packages during the war. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed writing about that and learning about what farming was like back then. And in particular, things like the sugar beet, which is really well known in East Anglia. And that provided half the country's sugar during the war because it used to be imported from America. But of course, those imports stopped and all the bombing raids happened and, and ships, not as many ships came over during the war. So, you know, farm production increased hugely during that time. It was a reserved occupation as well. So Joe's father didn't have to go to war. They had to just work on producing all this food for the country. And I think that's something Ruth finds very interesting. And then Joe also finds it interesting learning about Ruth's experiences. The fact he's missed a lot of the war. He's been quite sheltered from it. And I think it really opens his eyes to this whole world that he really hasn't seen. And you're telling it through Ruth's eyes. How easy is it? Because she's 12, isn't she? So how easy is it to get into the mind and the eyes of a 12-year-old? I think I always think back to how I was at 12, really, and uh, just try and get myself into that mindset. And as I said, sort of write for my, my younger self, really, as well. I read a lot of children's fiction as well. So you kind of get used to that kind of voice and the kind of style that you need to write in. But I don't say, I don't think I copy anybody else. I think you just kind of absorb it. And then you just sort of write for that particular sort of age group. But I can't actually imagine writing for any other age group now. I love writing for that age group. That viewpoint does filter down through almost everything, doesn't it? Because Ruth's mum is called Ruth's mum in the text. We know her real name. But of course, because we're seeing it through Ruth's eyes, she's Ruth's mum. Correct. So when I'm writing it, you're almost sitting on Ruth's shoulder, in effect, and witnessing everything that Ruth sees. So if something happens off the page and Ruth isn't there, then it really it won't be written about Ruth can hear about it from somebody else, but it's just that, that style of writing, really. So sort of really writing it from her viewpoint, which I really like. And lots of writers write from a number of different viewpoints. So you'll read uh, fiction where it's from you know, four or five people's different viewpoints and it switches. But I think it gives you more scope when you're writing about one person to really get into their character and into their mind and watch them develop, um, which is why I think I've sort of focused on doing all of my books in that way, really. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Castle on the Hill by Ed Sheeran. Why this one? Well, Ed's a Suffolk boy and I live in Suffolk. And uh, so, yeah, I just thought it'd be a very appropriate song. When I was six years old, I broke my leg. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. And we're talking on Bookmark today to Anne-Marie Howell about her novel, The Secret of the Treasure Keepers. Anne-Marie, we've been saying are the differences between 1948 and today. Actually, one of the things that I think you do point out as well is the similarities between that period and today. It was a time of great change then, as indeed it feels now. It certainly was a time of great change. And um, I think post-war things were really starting to change very, very quickly. Ruth refers at one point to the invention of the supermarket. The first supermarket actually came online in London in 1948, which I thought was absolutely incredible. And uh, Ruth talks about her father saying, well, it will never catch on. Why would you want to go to one shop to get all your food, you know, rather than going to the butchers and the grocers and the bakers and the fishmongers? So it's quite interesting to think back actually how recent these inventions are that we actually take for granted, really like finding those little facts and putting them in the story. Do you think there's anything we can learn, having researched that period now from that period in time? 
What I've learned through writing all of my books, actually, it's about human spirit and determination in times of adversity. And I think what amazes me is that people find a way to carry on. I think when something very terrible happens in your life or to somebody that you love, you kind of think that how, how are we going to get through this? We're not going to get through it. But people find a way to do it. And I think that's the message I want to give in all of my books, really, that times can be terribly hard. We all experience these really terrible times. But you do come through the other side of it with love and with family and with support. That's kind of the main message, really. Yeah, these characters are really resourceful, aren't they? They're resourceful on a practical level as well, the way that they use the limited ingredients, for example, that they have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the key thing about when you're writing for children, you have to make your your characters very active. You don't want to have passive characters um, on the page. They have to be, you know, using their wits and and doing things to sort of solve the mystery and work out the plot without adult help, which is always a challenge I find when I'm writing. It'd be very easy for an adult to come along and say, actually, if you think about this, this would solve the problem. But the kids are very determined to, to solve the mysteries on their own. So, yeah, so sneak off to Norwich and borrow the money for a bus fare and, you know, get up there and solve it. So, yeah, that's kind of fun. And there is a character, you have a character called the Eel Man. And I'm guessing that profession doesn't exist now a man and you make the point connected with the land and it did make me think yeah we have sort of lost a little bit of that connection with the land because we've lost jobs like that people like that yeah definitely and when I was research did a lot of research into the fens and went up to uh, the wonderful museum in Ely and bought lots of books about fenland farming and read about these incredible people that would literally farm eels and wildfowl and that's how they made their living and they would sell them at markets or to local people and it's a side of life I think that we don't often think about now or hear about and I just thought it's quite important to bring that connection to the land back in to show what it was like living on a farm and I think you know people that live on farms today clearly they still have that connection but I think this was 1948 was still before widespread machinery was brought into use And in the story, Joe's mum is very resistant to using a tractor that has been given to them. She wants to do things the old way with the horses and the plough. And I think that was something else I read about. You know, people didn't always want to use this machinery, have bigger fields, cut down their hedges to increase crop production. They wanted to maintain the old way of life. And I thought that was something very interesting to write about in the story. Yes. And also pre-NHS. And one of your characters has a cough (laughs) and uh, goes into the NHS and uh, has to pay for it. And I did think, oh, is there a bit of flag waving? Great flag waving there for the NHS, for those uh, more recently who've had a cough, which has turned into something serious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had to get the birth of the NHS in 1948. I'm in there in some way. And when I realised that one of my main characters would be quite ill, I thought, yeah, that was the perfect way to do it, really. And and just thinking about the community hospitals that we used to have pre-NHS, so you had the option of going to a community hospital or you could pay to go to a private hospital. But many people were too proud to go to community hospitals and accept it. They thought it was charity and they just didn't like that. So the NHS levelled everything out for people. So it didn't matter where in society you stood, everybody had access to the same facility which I think changed the mindset for a lot of people but that was fascinating yeah researching that. Thank you Anne-Marie we'll come back to you in just a moment let's move away from words actually now and talk about images let's hear from Yu Rong Yu began illustrating children's books when she was in China she has won numerous awards over the years including the Chen Bochui International Children's Literature Award for Best Picture Book for Smoke published in 2016 and the Grand Jury Prize and the Reader's Choice Prize at the Shanghai International Children's Book Fair for Free as a Cloud, published in 2017. 
Last month, she was shortlisted for this year's Carnegie Greenaway Awards for illustrations for the picture book Shulin's Grandpa by Matt Goodfellow. When I spoke to you, she told me about the book. So the book is called uh, Shulin's Grandpa. And Shulin, of course, is a Chinese girl's name. So it's um, talk about a little Chinese girl coming to England with parents. And uh, then she, she started a school. And of course, she didn't really speak English. And everything was so new for her. And for the classmates, the same. They just suddenly had a a classmate from far away who didn't speak the language and her lunchbox and a coat. Everything looked very different. So there is a boundary there that they didn't really know how to make friends or mix together, how to welcome her. And Suling also didn't know how to get new friends. So then... Grandpa, Suling's grandpa visited the classroom. So that made a big change. The grandpa is an artist. So he brought all the tools for Chinese painting. And in the classroom, he displayed a beautiful, magnificent Chinese landscape painting. So everybody was so impressed and very curious and very interested in the Chinese painting. Grandpa didn't speak the language. But I think the art brought everybody together. Afterwards, the whole classroom, they all tried to paint a Chinese dragon. And from there, the boundary melted. And Suling was very much welcomed and she became more confident. And the classmates, I think they all realized, you know, everybody is different. And everybody can bring different culture into the classroom to cheer everybody up. So the ending was the narrator, Dylan, from the story. He dreamed himself that night, danced with the dragon. So it's a simple story, but it delivers a really big message. Yeah, the message is there, lots of messages there and lots of issues touched on. So when it comes to illustrating something like that, where do you start? I'm a Chinese born, so I can easily link it to myself. How when I come here, how do I integrate to the local village, go to the college in London? I think everything just brought my memory back. And my mother was a head teacher for primary school and secondary schools. So I used to follow her, change schools. And, you know, normally people would think as headmaster's daughter, you would be very welcomed when you go to new school. But in fact, it's completely opposite. So every time I think, you know, like in the primary school, little girls, they form different groups. And I still remember so clearly I had to bribe the girls with the candies from Shanghai. So and then, of course, I went to different schools, universities and I come here. Every time when I go to um, different places, it's all new for me. But how to make friends and settle down myself, find myself identity, to be myself. Every time was so challenging. So that is a story really linked to my self-experience. That's one thing. Another thing is uh, Matt. He put That's the element. The author, Matt, author, good yeah. fellow, yeah. Yes. So he, in the middle of the story, he put the element of Chinese painting. That made me very excited because when I studied my BA degree in China for art, I did study Chinese painting. And I have all the materials for Chinese painting here, specialized paper and Chinese ink, Chinese uh, colors. So that I thought, oh, that's a good opportunity for me to pick up Chinese painting again. 
So that is all how I started when I read Matt's story and how I linked to myself, how I was inspired to work with his text. And what about the form? How did you decide what form to use, um, you know, with the watercolours or a different form? How did you decide on that? So when I studied at Royal College of Art, their first term before we started, the uh, department sent us a homework. How do you introduce yourself to everybody? We all came different countries. So the project emphasized you needed to show your background, where you come from. So I thought about it. I just thought, oh, uh, what I would think about myself because I come from China, what is uh, a representative art from China? So then I thought about paper cut. So I used the paper cut to, to do that project. And I think this project got quite a bit of attention so from Walker Books and also from tutors, the dean of the department, they all loved my paper cut. So since then, that is back to 1998, I started to use paper cut to explore my illustration. And it really worked out very well. From the beginning, I was very passive because the way how do you integrate with scissors and paper is very limited. But over more than 20 years, now I know, I think I know how to be a friend with my materials. So that is one, one thing. And I thought it's very suitable for this topic. So I used the colorful paper cut. And of course, the middle gate fold, I used the Chinese ink paint. So for a reader, you're in a way educating them about a little bit about Chinese art, about the history of Chinese art by using that technique. Yeah, definitely. Because... Uh, through the book, one thing I felt very joyful through the process to finish a book. I mean, as an illustrator, you know, you needed to be stimulated by the story. You needed to stimulate it by yourself. You are very engaged, carry on to finish the book. So how did I do that book is try to read the story over and over and try to deliver many little details of the elements about Chinese culture into each page. So, of course, Chinese painting, readers can visually immediately capture the image. But not only that, I introduced the set of brush and brush holders and the different colors and also different brushes. And if you read the book carefully, you see Chinese parrots, Chinese mountain, Chinese fan, different types of fan, the teacher holding a round shaped fan, a classmate holding another type of folding fan with a great war on the fan, dragon puppies and pandas. I always ask readers how many pandas you can find in the book, how many dragons you can find in the book. Shulin's backpack is a panda bag. Shulin's water bottle is a panda bottle. Uh, when they sit on the floor, listen to the teacher, there's a panda toy hidden somewhere. It's always something there for readers to discover and to find, oh, oh, this is new. The first time when I, when I read the story, I didn't see it. Second time, I spotted. Third time, I might discover something even more. So I just try to hide a lot of small elements for readers to discover and make the link to think about how do you see different cultures normally you don't see in your life. And how closely did you work with the author, with Matt Goodfellow? From the beginning to the end, we, we worked quite closely and together with the publisher, Jeanette. 
we actually changed a few bit of words of the story. So that in the original story, uh, we used uh, the word strange. This described a strange cold, a strange food. I mean, of course, it is a natural way for people to say, oh, your glasses look a bit strange, your coat a bit strange. But because it's, this is a quite a bit uh, sensitive topic, so we don't want to emphasize it. We, we just thought, uh, let's put it gentle. So we changed that word. And also we discussed about uh, dragons. That was very interesting. Chinese dragons and uh, Western dragons are quite different. So Western dragons, they can have wings and then they can blow fires. But Chinese dragons, no, we don't have wings. They are masters to look after oceans. So we are more linked to water. It also helped me and Matt to understand like different understanding for different culture. It was a very pleasant journey to work with him and uh, with the publisher Jeanette. I learned quite a lot. And congratulations, because you've been shortlisted for this amazing award, the Yoto Greenaway Award. How does that feel? That is very delightful news. I mean, of course, I, I'm very pleased for myself because this award is specially for illustrator. So our work gets recognized. But I think for me, the most touching thing is, um, of course, I'm immigrate, immigrate here. So when I moved here, I embrace all the different culture and make uh, myself the life experience more rich for. But you, sometimes you still think, oh, I'm come from a different uh, place, different country, how people try to understand you, how I try to understand a local culture. It takes time. So this book is about um, uh, how to introduce each culture, how to look at the diversity of our life. I'm more pleased that um, the panel can see this point. And what's next for you? I work a lot with Chinese publishers. So currently I'm working on a book about a kite. Also, I'm working on a book about the Monkey King. And in here, I have decided to work on a book about autistic children. Yeah, I think it would be quite a challenge, but, but I, I'm quite into the topics about uh, different types of groups. And last year, I did a book about uh, deaf children in China, and I was very touched because uh, we just take everything very granted. But when you put yourself into other people's shoes, you see how do they look at the world and make you feel life is so precious. We should really be kind to each other, be uh, more aware of each other and respect each other. And Shulin's Grandpa by Matt Goodfellow and Yu Rong is published by Candlewick Press. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Anne-Marie Howell, a.k.a. A.M. Howell, about her novel The Secret of the Treasure Keepers, published by Usborne Publishing. Anne-Marie, what's next for you then? What are you writing at the moment? Oh, well, I've just actually finished a first draft of something new that I'm absolutely sworn to secrecy on. I can't say a <laughs> oh, single darn. thing about it. I think the only thing I can say is... It is not set in the east of England, it's much further afield. But that's the only clue I can give you at the moment, I'm afraid. It's all tantalising, tantalising. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I actually just finished a lovely book last night called Villains in Venice by Catherine Woodfine. And it's part of her Taylor and Rose series. I've loved all of Catherine's books. They're all historical fiction for the same age group that I write for, following a detective duo. Uh, yeah, so really lovely stuff. So you do read uh, literature for that age group for pleasure? 
Oh, 100%. Yeah, definitely read it for pleasure. Yeah, I, I tend to alternate between one children's book, then one adult book. So yeah, to, sort of to switch it up a little bit. But yeah, no, I'd, I'd read all sorts of things. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your final choice of music, Anne-Marie, but a heads up that the next show, our featured guest is Geetha Lodge talking about her new psychological thriller, Little Sister. Vic Gatrell will be chatting about Conspiracy on Cato Street and Phil Johnson will be talking about his debut crime novel, Killer in the Crowd. But we'll sign out now, Anne-Marie, with your last choice of music, which is Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. Why this one? I listen to a lot of Elton John as I'm drafting my books and this is one of my absolute all-time favourite songs so that would be a good one to end on. Goodbye. 